The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The war in Ukraine sparks foreign capital flight in China. The West de-Russifies its energy mix, and we reveal options for Moscow's $140 billion gold chest. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange business. Welcome back to the Views Room. I'm your co-host, Amy Donlan, a columnist at Breaking Views, coming to you from the heart of Canary Wharf in London. Soaring gas and electricity prices are piling pressure on Western governments and forcing them to wean themselves off Russian energy faster than anyone expected. In Moscow, sanctions are squeezing the economy, which may prompt Vladimir Putin to explore a sale of the country's gold stores. And China, one of Russia's allies, is experiencing collateral damage as foreign investors pull their money out of Beijing. First, Pete Sweeney and I discuss how close ties with Moscow are making foreign investors jittery in China. Next up, I chat to George Hay about Vladimir Putin's decision to demand payment for hydrocarbon in rubles and how that might accelerate the West's decoupling from Russian energy. Finally, my colleague Peter Tal Larson talks to Gina Chan in Washington DC about the options for Russia's gold reserves that are outside the scope of current sanctions. Cash is fleeing China. That's the focus of my colleague Pete Sweeney's column this week that has certainly caught the attention of our readers. So Pete, last week we were speaking about Hong Kong easing its COVID-19 quarantine rules. This week we seem to be in mainland China. So tell us about this story. Uh, the background here is that um, you know China's investment story has generated a lot of headlines for decades. You know everybody has been very interested in reading about this this country that was growing at double digit rates, you know, producing these huge companies like Alibaba, you know, blowing up on stock markets. Um, and so there's, it, the country became this huge attractor of foreign direct investment in companies like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Starbucks, Ford, you know, everybody poured into the Chinese market. The big exception has been investment into Chinese onshore stocks and bonds. So there's been this long disconnect, um, you know, between investors. Well, okay, there's several reasons. Um, for one thing, it's been much harder uh, to to trade these instruments. Um, China has liberalized this part of its market more slowly than the direct investment. Um, you know, the idea was being, well, you know, if Ford or, or whatever co- comes into this, or Airbus, you know, comes into the country, um, there's potential for tech transfer, there's potential for, for job creation, you know, all these things that can upgrade us, whereas portfolio investment is just cash, you know, and it can go in and go out quite quickly. Um, so it poses some capital account stability problems, um, which Beijing hates. Um, so they've been more, much slower about it. And then on the other side, uh, you know, these are very volatile, distorted markets. So the foreign appetite for going into Chinese stocks and bonds has also been limited. But what has changed is that is that you know China has over in the last decade um, has has taken this much more seriously as a reform push. And they made all these attempts to get more foreign money in. Um, you know, to hedge their risk, to, to get more institutional investors, more serious investors into their markets to kind of stabilize them because they're very retail driven at present. Um, so there has been this push to open the doors, uh, relax policy and, and make it easier to trade. And, and that's been accepted and, and applauded by a lot of foreign fund investors. Um, so there has been, even though the, number, the absolute number still share is still quite low, there has been a dramatic uptake of, of foreign investment flowing into Chinese stocks and bonds recently until uh, the war in Ukraine. 
So you got your hands on this nice report that had data basically showing how that has sort of shifted very recently. So tell us about that. Yeah, so the Institute of International Finance came out with a report. Other people have, have hinted out as well, but at the, the same phenomenon, but but saying that according to their measures, um, you know, there's been this huge spike in net outflows out of Chinese assets uh, in, in the in the in the recent months since well since since Russia crossed the border basically, and it's striking given that like this did not occur during the pandemic. It didn't really occur during the trade war. Um, through all that talk of decoupling, um, you know, Wall Street put more and more money into Chinese assets um, over that entire time. But then, you know, all of a sudden, the bottom looks like it falls out. Um, and the, the, the correlation that <laughs> seems quite clear, but um, it's not clear what the causality is. But it, it's quite concerning timing wise. I guess it's not surprising. Um, you know, the overall Chinese economy is not doing that well. Um, there's they've been cracking down. The, the government has been lashing out at all these listed companies in the tech sector and real estate. Um, so the market was wobbly before. Um, but now it looks like, uh, you know, the, 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 the China's position to back Russia and Ukraine um, and the, the perception that this increases the risk that Chinese companies might be sanctioned by the U.S. government or Europe has really um, has really broken confidence significantly. And is, do you think that there is anything that can change that, um, that perception? As in, it seems from, from the things that I've been reading about Beijing, it, it seems like they, they are certainly friendlier to Vladimir Putin, but they're also trying to kind of maintain a bit of a neutral stance as well. But, but investors are, are, I guess, are, are trying to kind of protect themselves. Yeah, well, investors who aren't China analysts, you know, are having a real difficult time reading these mixed messages that Beijing is sending. So that they, they are sending both messages, right? So their state media is is totally endorsing the, the Russian line. Um, there's this push for to teach teachers how to teach the Ukraine issue to Chinese students that takes the Russian line. Um, they're quite loud about that. And obviously the foreign ministry is out there talking about how the U.S. is running chemical weapons and bioweapons labs in Ukraine and all that stuff. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you had because the Chinese markets have been sliding, um, you had the chief economic czar, Liu He, come out and make this big speech last week um, where he tried to restore some faith in the market. And that included, you know, kind of signaling that, like, well, we're going to stop having these these manic crackdowns. And we're also going to work with the Americans to see if we can put a, you know, get away to, to, to figure out this conflict we're having over Chinese listed companies in the States, you know, which the SEC, well, basically American legislators want to just delist. Um, so they've sent out these little kind of friendly flags on that front that like, hey, guys, you know, we're going to stop doing all these these um, regulatory changes um, that put entire sectors out of business. And, you know, we still want access to New York and we're willing to talk about audit sharing, auditing papers and all these outstanding issues. Um, but, you know, it's 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 doesn't seem to have restored that much confidence yet. And, uh, you know, it, it just might be at this point too little too late. And, and this all has implications for an election, right? There's an election this year for Xi Jinping. Um, this, I would imagine, is not... Well, put that in scare quotes. I mean, it's not an election. It's Well, it is sort of... He's he's going to be put back into... He's going to be given a third term. So they, they changed the law specifically to allow him to have a third term. He's definitely going to get it. Um, you know, obviously, there's some, some ructions within the, the various party factions. Not everybody in China is happy about China's position on... Russia, I mean, Russia is an economic blip compared to China's economic relationship with with Europe and markets in, in the United States. Um, you know, Russia is, is, a, is a gas station for China, basically. Um, they're upset about, you know, the kind of increasing ideological approach to stock markets. Um, 
and uh, and they're worried about the general direction of the economy, which isn't doing that well. So there's some resistance to him, and it and it's, I mean, in in absolute terms, as you can see, like the withdrawal of foreign money itself is not that big a deal um, because there wasn't that much in the first place. But if it pulls, if Chinese money follows it, if this is seen as kind of a negative vote of no confidence in the reform plan, um, then you start having a real economic problem, not just an embarrassment. Um, keeping in mind that that stock markets are rickety. Um, there's there's not too much leverage in it, but like last time we had a big crash in 2015, it was, you know, it caused this huge panic because of all this 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 borrowing, you know, margin positions had to get unwound in a jiffy. Um, so there's that risk as well. So it's not it's it right now it's it's more of an annoyance and like a headline that Beijing doesn't like than some sort of economic crisis, but um, it certainly has the potential to turn into something much more ugly um, at kind of a politically sensitive time. We'll be watching closely, Pete. Thanks very much for chatting to us today. Thanks, Amy. The West has a new reason to wean itself off Russian energy. That's the view from my colleague George Hay. So, George, tell us, why would Vladimir Putin's plan to get the West to pay for energy in rubles, why might that backfire? Well, um, basically, uh, I mean, it's an interesting uh, gambit through bombshell that he uh, dro dropped last last week. Um, he kind of said, uh, you know, obviously, as everyone knows, um, gas and oil and all those big energy contracts uh, almost universally um, uh, denominated in in big in recognised currencies like um, uh, dollars, the US dollar and euros. And um, at the moment, all the Russian gas contracts are in euros, and so. Uh, and that's what um, the consumers are used to. But Putin has a has a fairly obvious problem that the the um, Russian ruble currency has slumped and gone through the floor since he invaded Ukraine. And so, if if he is a very simple reason why he might want to do this, which is to uh, just prop up the value of that currency and make things a bit easier for Russia. But the the downside is that. Um, it may it may be that the big European importers of Russian gas, like Uniper and any, um, they they might not want to actually do that, and um, it kind of brings uh, things to a head uh, because either Putin, it may be a kind of uh, pretext for Putin to just cut off the gas, or it might be a a sign for um, these big consumers to renegotiate the, the contracts. Basically, that it it could bring it all to a head where. Uh, you get a situation where this huge amount of gas that goes from Russia to Europe effectively dries up, either because uh, uh, Russia cuts it off or because uh, Europeans say they don't want to they don't want to have any more. Now, the big in answer to your question, like um, why is it a big risk? In between him saying that and now, Joe Biden and his opposite number at the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, they had a meeting on Friday and they. Um, they basically agreed this really quite unprecedented uh, deal whereby uh, the US will supply uh, the EU with uh, liquefied natural gas, uh, i.e. LNG. And um, it's, it's absolutely integral that that happens because um, if we get to a situation where Putin turns off the gas, then that 155 billion cubic metres of Russian supply that goes to Europe that in extremists wouldn't be there anymore and that's like a, a that's a huge amount of of, uh, of the europeans overall annual consumption kind of well over a third and so you have this big problem of like how on earth are you going to fill this hole 
and um, that's that's where this this uh, this deal comes in because it's it's got a lot of detail about how you might do that. And George, does this kind of touch the sides in terms of of what Europe has been getting from Russia? As in, does mm. this does this fill that void, or does it fill it enough that you know it won't be a quite quite as bad of a sting as people are expecting? I mean, we already yeah, see yeah. energy prices you know through the roof. Well, um, yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the vital question because uh, the the answer to that is kind of yes and no. Like the the, the yes bit of it is um, what what this European plan that came out on the March March the eighth is. It's called Repower EU, catchy name. Um, like the the idea was right. We're going to do a bit of a handbrake turn, and we're going to reduce Europe's reliance on Russian gas imports by two thirds relative to 2021, which is basically about roughly about 100 BCM. Now, um, you can do that in all sorts of ways. You can kind of fast track renewable power. You can um, uh, you can basically use a, a lot less power. Um, one of the plans that one of the ways they're going to fill that gap is to just try, try and get people to turn down their thermostats. But on a jumper, as my mother would say. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a uh, uh, remains to be seen as to as to whether how enthusiastic people will do that. But the, easily the biggest moving part is this, which is pretty much half of it, 50 BCM, is um, additional LNG imports from around the world. Now that this this is kind of you know from a supply point of view, can you get 50 BCM of, of extra LNG cargoes in these big ships to come to Europe? And the answer to that according to the to experts is probably yes you probably can do that and uh, you know part of that is just the US unilaterally deciding to to, to export more uh, which they can do but another part of it is just them uh, using their kind of you know considerable heft on the world stage to intervene in um, uh, conversations between the um, buyers and sellers other buyers and sellers um, such as Qatar and Australia are big exporters. Um, Japan, other countries in the Far East are big buyers, um, and the US can kind of use its heft to um, ask some of those cargoes to be rerouted to Europe. So basically, you can do that. The big problem with that is um, uh, the way that the LNG market is, works is that um, you those those uh, cargoes will reroute to wherever the price is highest. And the good news for Europe at the moment is that, um, well, it's good and bad news, is, is that prices are extremely high and therefore lots of LNG will come to Europe. Pretty much, even if even if um, Ursula von der Leyen and Joe Biden hadn't done this deal on Friday, uh, the LNG would probably have come just as a, because of the market signals. But the big problem is that um, it, it is, is, is the same thing that make, makes that possible, which is that the prices are really high. And so um, everyone in Europe will be paying very high prices for that LNG. And um, so in terms of if you're just trying to solve the exam question of how on earth do you replace all this Russian gas, um, you can you can answer that in the affirmative and tick that. The, if you're trying to answer the exam question of how do you stop uh, European energy prices going through the roof, uh, that is rather, rather harder. Um, and in fact, this probably won't do that. So this is an expensive partial fix, but I suppose it, it it helps Europe to kind of stick it to Vladimir Putin as well, which I suppose is, well, is well, part of the plan. Absolutely. And ultimately, the reason why a lot of politicians and in people in the markets have been saying, you know, <laughs> what's the point of having these sanctions with with, with special carve outs for um, gas and, and oil? 
uh, if all you're achieving is just sending hundreds of uh, millions of dollars every day to Putin to continue his war in in Ukraine. If if you want the if you want the war in, in Ukraine to to end or at least to uh, wind down, then um, there's no point in doing that. And so, but the, the sharp end of that is just that um, that creates this huge problem that needs to be solved. And I think to a certain extent, this kind of solves that, but um, we will pay for it. <laughs> oh, plenty more to write, George. I look forward to reading more from you. Well, thanks very much and talk to you soon. Cool. Thanks. Hello again. I'm Peter Farlarsson, the uh, acting global editor of Reuters Breaking Views, and I'm joined by Gina Chon in Washington, D.C. Hi, Gina. Hi, Peter. Hey, good to have you back. Um, so we're going to talk about gold, uh, which is always a popular topic for people to talk about. And in particular, we're going to talk about Russian gold. Uh, you read a piece uh, for Breaking Views this week, which looked at Russia's $140 billion gold stash and um, what they might do with it. Just tell us a bit, how was Vladimir Putin ended up with so much gold? Well, it's a pretty smart move by him uh, to shore up his defenses against sort of global economic blowback on some of his uh, moves in regards to uh, other territories in the region. So after uh, Russia annexed Crimea back in 2014, the U.S. then also imposed sanctions on Russia, and he uh, fortuitously decided to then increase uh, Russia's holdings in gold um, to protect itself. So you can see from that time, he basically tripled his uh, the central bank's gold holdings to what the White House estimates to be around $140 billion now, which is uh, quite a bit for a country like that. Yeah, it's about, I think you said it's about 20% of, of Russia's central bank reserves. And obviously all the more important now that the US and, and the EU and the UK and others have frozen a big chunk of Russia's central bank reserves. So, so something like half of the 600 billion that they had in reserve has been frozen. So that makes the gold even more important. But I guess the question is, you can have this gold sitting in a vault somewhere in Moscow or St. Petersburg, but but can you spend it? Yeah, well, and that's uh, something that could be a loophole for Russia. And we saw the United States and other um, allies try to close that loophole by announcing that sanctions on uh, central bank transactions apply to gold as well. Uh, but as you say, using it can be tricky because it's a physical product. And so he, to use it, especially given the sanctions Russia faces now, they will likely have to actually move it out of the country somehow. And then that gets into various uh, schemes that have been used in the past that are quite complicated to set up. Yeah, so, so tell us what we know. Uh, your story had some good examples. Uh, just give us a few, a bit of a taster of like, how have countries sort of got around these sort of problems, these sort of sanctions problems in the past? So interestingly, Russia may actually have some experience in helping other nations that have faced U.S. sanctions, in particular Venezuela. So one of the um, Venezuelan opposition uh, representatives 
talked about how two years ago or so um, Russian charter planes showed up in Venezuela to uh, pick up gold that the country had and sent it to Mali to be refined and then resold in the United Arab Emirates to in exchange for U.S. dollars and euros. So that's one of the ways that could be used by Russia now if they found some you know, sympathetic countries or actors who wanted to help them out in a similar manner. But obviously, the you know the Americans and others will be watching. Uh, Wally Adeyemo, the, the 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 Deputy Treasury Secretary, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, was was talking uh, in London about, you know, if if people help Russia evade sanctions, we will find them. And it's you know the costs of doing that are greater than the benefits you might get from helping Russia with sanctions. So, how does a country like Russia stay one step ahead of of the American investigators? Well, interestingly, because Putin has had some time to plan this and build up his gold reserves, you know, he could have similarly uh, taken that time to think of sort of very complex schemes that would be hard to trace, uh, which we've seen used by various uh, countries and actors when it comes to helping Iran uh, evade Western sanctions as well. Uh, There's a long-running court case in in the U.S. uh, with a plot that allegedly started back in 2010, and it involved several Turkish entities, including a state-backed lender, um, in sort of a gold-to-cash scheme. But to show you how many hoops you have to jump through to kind of set something like this up, this... um, plot involved uh, various front companies, fake humanitarian food shipments and, and fake oil purchases and businesses located all over the world, including uh, Switzerland and Hong Kong. So if you're able to set up uh, something like that, um, you, you may get caught, but it will probably take years to prosecute. And by then, the country that benefited, uh, in this case, Iran, those benefits have sort of long been realized, and that's something that is difficult to claw back. Yeah, uh, I guess this is going to be the new sort of the new cold, the Cold War equivalent of sort of Western investigators running around various kind of shady places on the trail of possible Russian gold. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an amazing image, uh, but uh, but I guess that's that's the world we're in now. Uh, Gina, this was really fascinating. Uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, for taking the time to talk us through it. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about Russian gold from you when we get the chance. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong and Sharon Lam in Toronto. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views and these stories and many others on breakingviews.com and Twitter, where our handle is breakingviews.